Change how you begin. Rather than starting with academic progress, start by talking about the student. Talk about their worth as a person. Talk about who they are and who you see them as. Speak good things over their lives. Start there. Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews and today I'm talking with Tom Marnie about parent-teacher interviews in the midst of our Christian schools. Tom is an educator, a writer, he's doing his PhD and he's actually got a few kids as well. And he was kind enough to make some time in the midst of all of that to come and talk with me about Christian education. And I'll tell you, parent-teacher interviews can be so densely crowded with nervousness or excitement, sometimes apathy and frustration. But in reality, these discussions offer us a chance to engage in our core business, partnering with parents in the education of their children. This discussion is based around Tom's contribution to the May edition of the Christian Teachers Journal. He's written an article entitled Approaching Parent-Teacher Interviews Counterculturally. Don't worry if you don't have your hands on a copy of that journal. We've made sure this discussion is accessible to everyone. Know that before we recorded, we prayed for you that whether you're a student or a parent or other community member, this discussion may prepare you and equip you to contribute to the life of your school. As always, if you benefit from these discussions, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with those who you think would benefit from it. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Tom Marnie, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, look, it's really good to have you here, mate. We're smack bang in the middle of our Easter break. Tell me this, are you the sort of guy who thrives in a bit of school holidays or do you really need the routine of term time to keep you sane? That's a good question. I love school holidays. I will not deny it. I think it's a beautiful thing and I love having some family time and I love just keeping busy with other things. I love putting education, teaching stuff maybe to the side a little bit. I still do like to think about education a lot while I'm on my holidays, but in terms of the teaching and ministrivia, I love to just put that to the side, do some gardening and hang out with the family. And so it's been really special. Been keeping busy doing things and just loving it, just absolutely enjoying it. So Good man. I tell you what, I find it actually the most exhausting time of the year, the school holidays. Mm. And this is where I – it's funny because I actually – I spend a lot of time at home. I've got two young boys – and they got a bucket load of energy. And my wife runs a very tight ship, but it's just an exhausting ship to be on in the fact that, like, these little dudes, they're just herring around. My wife has this great motor. She can just keep up with them all day. But I would happily teach a full day in class before I spend a full day at home with just two boys. Mm. Um, obviously love the dudes, but, man, they tucker me out. Yeah. I go back to term for a break. Yep. I don't know. Do you, do you feel like that at all? That's so funny. I feel like I heard that as a young a young man and I thought, that is such a strange concept to hear older people saying, oh, I come to work for a break. And I, I totally, totally get it now. And it, I think having a good holiday period as a teacher, especially for me, uh, having a wife and also having two kids, it just gives me a greater sense of appreciation for just how amazing my wife is and what she does. I think... It's just an incredible thing that I don't think our society necessarily values enough and it's just so great to to really experience that firsthand and just get a real appreciation for whew, um, what it means to be a stay-at-home parent. <laughs> 
It is eye-wateringly hard, Yaka. I mean, I've had some big days in the classroom. So there's one day this year where I'm teaching all periods on. I'm a, I'm a high school teacher. And that's all right. You get a certain match fitness for that. You get used to it as the year goes on. But I remember once my wife was sick, so I stayed home. I looked after the boys, took some carer's leave. And you just about had to scrape me off the couch by about 4.30 p.m. I didn't even last the whole day. It was it was absolutely shocking. But I actually, I agree with what you said about putting all the admin to the side and actually having a little bit of time here and there to think about teaching as well. Sometimes you can get so busy doing it that you don't actually get any time or space to think about it. So I find I, find I have these big penny dropping sort of moments because I'm not flicking through my inbox, I'm not having to do the grades or the assessment or the reporting or anything like that, you can actually get some big tectonic plates in place mm. with a little bit of time and space, can't you? Yeah, and I think it does really set you up well for your next term. You can, you can enter into the term with almost a renewed sense of what it is you're doing. Obviously, there are times where we might not necessarily be able to do that but when we do get the chance to just take a step back and to uh to think about what we're doing i think it makes all the difference when we come back into it it's glorious it's glorious now tom you have written an article for the may edition of the christian teachers journal called approaching parent teacher interviews counter culturally so this is a fairly sensitive subject for a lot of teachers um many people have got sort of the scar tissue to prove how sensitive it is. Tell me, before we get into discussing countercultural parent-teacher interview practices, I've got to ask, have you got any good parent-teacher stories for us, mate? So let me just talk about one particular story that has happened this year. I was catching up with the parents and a student in Year 7, and this particular student I knew really enjoys power tools. And the reason I know that is because all grade six students, when they come into our school, they complete this thing called a passport, which they write a bit about themselves. They basically give us the inside scoop about who they are as a person, what makes them tick. And so as a year seven home group teacher of this this student, I was able to get a bit of an understanding of what this, this boy enjoys. And so we caught up for mathematics and he, he struggles a bit with mathematics. But during the interview, I was able to put that aside for a moment and ask him how his power tools are going and how many he's got at the moment. And he got so excited. He told me about his impact drivers and what he's looking at getting next. And his face just lit up. And it was such a little thing. And I can't really know for sure if it really made much of a difference. But I think it's those moments that really give us the best opportunity and chance to really make an impact in into a student's life, to let them know that they're they're valued for more than just their academic pro progress, but that their desires and their those things that they enjoy are important, and that they are unique in their own ways, and that's that's a beautiful thing. So that's just one story that uh, came to me about this year. Yeah. Well, look, I got to tell you, Tom, I left that question very open for you. I was thinking, look, maybe we'll get a good story out of him. Maybe we'll get something that will, uh, you know, someone really got up his nose and they had fisty cuffs over the front of the table and disrupted the whole auditorium. But that sounds like a very positive 
meeting. And that goes to show, doesn't it, that if we are able to take a few, uh, just a few simple key steps, these can actually be really leveraged to strengthen our relationship, not only with the parents in our community, but with the students too. Uh, just a question on that. So you had a parent-teacher meeting and the student was at the meeting as well. Is that standard practice yeah, at your it school? it is standard practice. It's encouraged. Not that it always happens all that all that, all the time, but most of the time we encourage the students to be there. I think it's really important as teachers and parents and students to all be together because it gives a greater sense of unity about what we're doing. But that's not necessarily always communicated in that way, but I think from my perspective, I think it's really important that there is there is each individual party there and we're all united in relation to what we're saying, what we're talking about and and where we're going, I guess, next. And that's exactly right. I mean, even if you take some of this material coming out from Tom Hattie and Visible Learning, where we're wanting students to be active participators in their learning. So learning is not something that you sit back and it happens to you. You're actually, you're taking active steps, you're directing your own learning. And so it actually, of course, makes perfect sense that you would be at your own parent-teacher meeting. So I'm a huge fan of students going to those meetings. The Christian Education Podcast is brought to you by Teaching in Tassie. At Christian Education National Schools in Tassie, you can make a difference. You have the freedom to express your faith and values, of course, with Jesus right at the centre. Tasmania's beautiful environment has space to breathe. We have amazing food and wine, wilderness to explore. There's an adventure right on your doorstep. There are endless opportunities. I've got to tell you, it's almost perfect. To sign up or learn more, visit teachingintassie.com.au and you'll be the first to know when there's a career available. Who knows? It may just have your name on it. Let's get back to the discussion. I don't know about you, Tom, and what you've been hearing down your neck of the woods, but I've heard a lot of anecdotal evidence over the last maybe three years or so. So it would have started in COVID, but has persisted as a trend. And this anecdotal evidence sort of leads me to believe that even parent attendance at parent-teacher meetings might actually be on the slide, might be declining. So that that leads me to ask then... Why are parent-teacher meetings so important? And what do you think we would actually stand to lose if they become a less regular feature of our school communities? Mm. I think you alluded to it in an earlier comment you, you made in relation to parent-teacher meetings is that it's all about relationships. And I think there is a difference between an email and a phone call and meeting in person. No matter whether it's five minutes, seven minutes, 15 minutes, however your school does it, Meeting in person is different. And I think relationships are formed through physical interaction in three dimensions. And I think we could even just talk about COVID and how that distance we had between each other, that physical distance really made a big difference. We were close virtually, but we were distant physically. And that that made a big impact in relation to our relationships with our students, our communities, and the families that we were we were partnering with in education. I think as well, when it comes to parent-teacher meetings, sometimes the parent-teacher meetings are the only time that teachers will get to see the parents. Sometimes there might be so little 
communication interaction because parents are busy, there's things going on, that parent-teacher meetings might be the actual only time that teachers might be able to actually see the parents face-to-face. And I think that's really important for just getting trust, I guess gaining trust from the parents that you are partnering with them. And I think as well when it comes to meeting physically, there is that opportunity as well to open up in ways that parents and students might not otherwise if it was via email or on on the phone. So this year I've had a number of parents just openly talk to me. We have a five-minute window and I have parents telling me about these these traumas and the, this grief that they're experiencing. And, and it just opens things up for me to understand more fully just what is going on in their children's lives. And as a teacher, it helps me to get a, a fuller understanding of what might be going on for this child. And so I think if we were to remove those parent-teacher meetings or if we continue to see parent-teacher meetings sliding, I think what we're going to see is a, a further widening of the relationships between teachers in their communities, which I believe would la- lead to a lack of understanding, a lack of united purpose and understanding in relation to what it is we're actually trying to do. And I think those meetings are a really good place for us as teachers to really communicate what it is we're trying to do. You're absolutely right. And i got to tell you, during the COVID years, we did some Zoom parent-teacher meetings. And yeah, it's maybe 30% as good. So it's better than nothing, but it's a whole heck of a lot worse than actually being face-to-face. I mean, we understand just from a theological point of view that Christ himself, um, he didn't come in a merely spiritual or distant way. He was incarnated. He was enfleshed. He actually walked around and shook people's hands and um, cruised around um, in boats and all this sort of stuff. It was an enfleshed life. And the further we pull back from that, well, I just think it's to our detriment, and I think you're absolutely right too, Tom, when, when you meet parents, and I've had this in my very first year, actually, I remember back my very first set of parent-teacher interviews, may have even been the first interview. I had had this kid and I'd had a bit of a hard time getting through to them. I just found communication was an issue. And I get across the table from the parent and all of a sudden, it's like the penny dropped. Like you under, you see the parent, you understand the kid. The parent has a lot of explanatory power. You go, oh, this is, the, this is the water this kid has been swimming in for the major formative parts of their entire life. So me as a teacher, I'm trying to become an expert in my subject. I'm also trying to become an expert in my students. And I'll tell you what, that, that is the absolute fast track becoming an expert in your student through talking to the parent and through just even observing the parent. Have you found that to be your experience as well, Tom? I think so. I think it gives an opportunity to interrupt our perception of who that student is and what their identity is, is sort of wrapped in. I think it gives an opportunity for us to understand more fully what's going on and gives a an opportunity for us to uh, show grace as well, I think, in many ways. So I think those those opportunities are really important and I don't think you can necessarily get them in another form. I think that physical interaction needs to take place for that to happen. 
So let's look at the actual practice of the interview now. So as Christian schools, we've always been big on the idea of worldview. That's like number one thing you learn at the sort of schools that we have taught at throughout our careers. Uh, the worldview, of course, uh, is a set of philosophical or theological glasses through which we're viewing the world. It shapes everything we do. Um, and that's just not just the way we would do science or maths, but it shapes the way we would do discipline conversations, perhaps, or, or run an athletics carnival. Having said that, though, it is actually all too easy for our practice to drift into this space where it is at odds with our worldview. We can, we can say we believe certain things are important, but actually with our actions, we show we might value another set of things entirely. How can that happen with our parent-teacher interviews? I think you're highlighting a pretty continual problem that as teachers we, we have to wrestle with, this whole tension between our beliefs and our actions. And I think, especially as Christian teachers, we can believe that all students are intrinsically valuable in God's kingdom. But we are swimming in a cultural fish tank, as, as some might describe it, that has dominant perspectives surrounding education that can in many ways become the default way of engaging in the, in the parent-teacher meeting practice. It also has to do with interactions with university, with mentor-teachers, and cultures within the school. So there's all these different factors that can essentially pull us away from maybe um, what God wants for these meetings. I think when it comes to parent-teacher interviews, often the dominant perspective is to consider them in relation to providing progress for academic uh, ability. So we look at com comparison to peers. So Recently, since I think it was 2005, government legislation meant that all schools have to have an A to E grading scheme. So that leaves very little for schools to change the narrative. We've got this A to E, which is a comparison measure of academic ability and hence actually speaks into the worth of students. And so I think this, and we could talk about a, a bunch of different narratives that speak into the, the practice of parent-teacher interviews as a, as a means of just providing academic progress. But I like to speak about this particular narrative, which is called the economic consumer narrative. And this narrative in particular tells a story about who we are. So it says that we are what we do for a living. It says that our worth is measured according to the goods we possess. So that might be the amount of information we've been able to retain in our last mathematics test or whatever you decided it is, and our future outcomes are dependent on the above two. And that narrative, which is all about serving an economy, can often be the dominant way that we go about practicing in parent-teacher interviews. It's not necessarily always the case, and teachers are always finding ways to challenge this. But unfortunately, this is the cultural water that we're swimming in. And so I think as Christians, we really need to be interrogating that and considering how we might be able to give a different story. And it's really interesting you say that you talk about cultural stories. And I think that's a really helpful addition to this discussion because worldview is a term that I love and that has really carried a lot of water for us in Christian ed. It's really shaped the way we think about things. However, you can get the sense 
when you're talking about worldview, that we are dealing with a very clearly defined grid of philosophical and theological assumptions about the world. It's all declarative truth. Um, and of course, we all do hold those sorts of beliefs, but they don't shape the entirety of us. In fact, sometimes they might shape the minority of us. And actually, we've got our abstract propositional truth up here, but maybe at a more foundational level, you've got stories that are animating you. Because no one ever pulls us aside and says, all right, just remember this, son, it's about contributing to a healthy and strong economy. No one does that, but it's actually woven in as a thread Perhaps these cultural stories, you know, the, the teachers of these cultural stories might be better at weaving in their threads than we are, um, but they seem to be so infused and suffused within everything that we can adopt them. And we find we're, we're believing these abstract truths or these propositional truths, yet we're living along the lines of this story. And you, you've talked about the story of the economic consumer. So... The Bible, of course, being the greatest story of all, the greatest true story, of course, how would the scriptures push back on that model of the economic consumer and where would they point us? Yeah, so in the same way that the economic consumer narrative tells a story about who we are, where our worth lies and what our future looks like, the biblical story has a different story to tell in relation to those three things. And though we can, I'm sure we could have a whole podcast on each of these little points, uh, I'll just quickly just uh, counteract each of those those three things that I, I spoke about in relation to the economic consumer narrative. And we'll talk about the biblical narrative. So the biblical narrative, instead of you are what you do, so the biblical narrative says you are God's creation. You are fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image. That's a beautiful thing. And in terms of our worth, our worth doesn't lie in the goods we possess, the amount of information we're able to retain, our IQ. No, our worth is found in Jesus, who even with all of our imperfections chose to die for us so that we could live life to the full and have a relationship with God. And the last one, our future. Our future is not dependent on the goods we possess or the things that we do. No, our future is in the hands of a loving and caring God who goes before us in everything. Now, it doesn't mean we're not going to have trials and it doesn't mean that we're not going to have hard times, but we know that there is a God of hope and we know that there's a God who is looking after us and interceding on our behalf. That's really profound, Tom, and I like the way you've been able to draw from uh, the Psalms, from Proverbs, from Romans, as you pull out this beautiful story um, and, and show us that, the Christian story, whilst having the quality of being true, is also just far more elegant. It's far better. And that's language that has been in the Christian community for the last four or five years, hasn't it, of telling a better story. And, of course, you would you would extend that and say, well, let's act along in a better story and, and let's believe it and have it um, encapsulate all parts of our educational practice. So let's, let's think of this... Uh, discussion as somewhat of a, a Pauline epistle, like the book of Ephesians. We've got some good, high, lofty theology, and you've really served that up to us quite nicely. Let's try and put some meat on the bones now, Tom. So I'm a first-year teacher, say, 
Uh, I've never done a parent-teacher interview before. What are some of the things that I should be looking at as an educator to do in these interviews, in these discussions? What I'd suggest, if we're going to really challenge that narrative, is that we change how we begin our conversations. So something that I feel quite convicted by is the way that I often start my conversations by talking straight about the academic progress of my students. This is how they're going. You know, these are their results. Boom, 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 boom. Change how you begin. Rather than starting with academic progress, start by talking about the student. Talk about their worth as a person. Talk about who they are and who you see them as. Speak good things over their lives. Start there and then go into those other things. I think as a teacher, that is probably just the easiest way to to change and flip that narrative. Change what you begin with, which says, this is actually what I believe is the most important, and I'm going to put this first on my agenda, and then we're going to talk about this other stuff. Uh, The other thing is that sometimes it's hard for teachers to actually do this in and of themselves. Sometimes I think we need some structures and policies in place. And so there is, there is, uh, I guess, scope for schools to look on a policy level about how we might be able to reconceptualize the whole thing of parent-teacher meetings and actually do some of the groundwork into thinking about what the actual purpose is. Like, what are we doing here? And why is it important? And for that particular school community deciding, okay, this is, this is what we want these parent-teacher meetings to look like and this is why. And so that reframing of what the actual meetings themselves um, encompass is something that I know a, a few schools are doing. So a few schools in, in Canada are talking about deep hope and so they talk about deep hope meetings with their, their parents where instead of framing the conversations as a means of academic progress and things like that, they're trying to center it more on what is your deep hope for school and what, what are the parents' deep hope for their children? Uh, what are their hopes in, uh, as they enter into God's world? And these kinds of conversations and these, this reframing of parent-teacher meetings can help to actually challenge some of those dominant perspectives and actually help us to align more maybe to a biblical perspective. And so I think there's, yeah, there's two, two sides of that coin there. There's, there's the, the teacher can take it on individually, but also I think the teacher would really benefit from a school-wide uh, interrogation of the practice and realigning it to biblical perspectives. Absolutely. And if you're going to look after your Christian teachers, you don't want them going out there as lone gunmen or as some renegade trying to turn this whole ship around on their own. Because that's actually, in some ways, you're going to set them up not for failure, maybe for alienation. If a, if a, stu- if a parent has had four kids come through the school and on number five, you know, the fifth kid's in year 10, and all of a sudden this new teacher's asking them about deep hope, when really the parent came in to talk about why the algebra grades were so low, you you can see there's going to be some sort of disjunction there. I think one of the really easy ways, and I'm not sure if there's schools doing this already, Tom, one of the easy ways that we could address this is just by calling parent-teacher interviews partnership conversations. 
I mean, that's what that's Easy. what it is. That's that's what many of our schools are founded on. That's yeah. the core doctrine. God gave children not to schools, not to churches. He got he gave them to parents, and parents are partnering with us. Well, why don't we call them a partnership conversation? And something that I've tried to do recently to acknowledge partnership is actually to start my conversations by saying, uh, tell me, how is your son or daughter going? Because I think many, many parents can implicitly think, well, they're the expert. I'm going to go hear from them. Am I really the expert? You know, I see your son or daughter for four periods a week. You know, that's, that's four lots of 40 minutes. I, I think actually you're the expert. And I want to put parents in the position where they go, oh, hang on. No, actually, maybe I am the expert uh, as to how my son or daughter is going. And of course, I'm going to know a little bit more about or a lot more about how they're going in history. And we can thrash some of that sort of stuff out. But you're absolutely right. The start of a conversation is high value. And if you start poorly, it's hard to wrestle it around. If you start asking the wrong questions, well, even if you kind of get some all right answers, you're still off base, mm-hmm. aren't you? Yeah, and I just want to uh, talk about something that you you mentioned there, talking about reframing your parent-teacher meetings as partnership meetings. I think that could potentially be a really great way of challenging the uh, the decline in parent-teacher meeting attendance. I think partly maybe the reason that parents are not attending so much is maybe they feel like, they actually don't have any part to play. They send their kids off to school, the school does the things, and then boom, and they sort it out. The teacher's the expert, we'll let them do their job. But I think there is an opportunity for a much more rich and full education if we as communities come together and, yeah, hash it out, figure out what we're trying to do. And when it comes to the individuals that we're teaching, we need to get, we need to get everybody on board. Having everyone on board is central to our mission, isn't it? And that's a stark contrast to what can often happen. So I heard a far more experienced teacher than myself. Um, you know, a lot of my time in schools has been interrupted by COVID, right? So I haven't necessarily developed a good baseline. But as I was coming, uh, I was actually working at a different school. I work at Calvin Christian School now, but I was working at a different um, Christian school. And he said, look, you're going to get two types of people at your parent-teacher interviews. You're going to get the people who are um, just on cloud nine. Their kid gets A's. I mean, the school has continuous reporting. The parent knows exactly what the grades are, but they love going around and hearing how well their son or daughter is going. And hey, look, I would too, absolutely. There, that's, that's one side of the coin. The flip side is the other parent who's, you know, tearing their shirt, wringing their hands, what is going on here? You know, why isn't little Johnny getting through? Um, and what have you done? Well, you've taken a big melon scoop there out of the entire middle of the student cohort. So you've got maybe the top 15% and the bottom 15%. And who's left over? Well, 70%. And so you're right. If, if we're able to discuss these, um, if we're able to have these discussions under the guise of partnership, well, we're partnered with everyone. Um, it's not sort of remedial academic conversations. Um, it's it's not an awards giving ceremony. It's actually it's partnership, and that is just core business for every single family at the school. Yeah, that's great. I think it also challenges all the individualistic notions that are currently 
pervading education as well. And so that, that whole thing that it's about individual success and, and it's about the individual getting, getting the learning opportunities they need to then get their jobs and all that sort of, that sort of thing. I think it also allows that opportunity for partnership to be more than just individuals trying to seek their own path, but individual, individuals working within a community to support each other to, to move things forward. Well, Tom, it has been an exceptional conversation and I've really benefited from hearing your wisdom. There are going to be a lot of people out there, however, who just want a little bit more Tom Marnie in their lives. Tell me, where can we go to hear more from you, to read more from you? Where, where do we go? Yeah, if you're interested in reading some of my work, I write a fortnightly blog on Substack called The Interruption, which just explores some of the perspectives in education that are currently swirling around the educational hemisphere. And so if you're interested in that sort of thing, go on to Substack and then you'll, you'll find it there. It's called The Interruption. I also contribute to an Australian podcast that is all about education. It's called The Teacher's Education Review. And I contribute with a podcast segment called Ideology in Education, which is essentially looking at the, the way different perspectives come to form the way we see education in Australia and also taking the time to sort of challenge some of the, um, the notions within those. So if you're in there, any of that, uh, feel free to get in touch. I'm on, on Twitter as well um, at Tom Marnie EDU. Otherwise, um, yeah, thanks for listening. Well, it's been, a, it's been a real treat talking to you. I appreciate your time. I'm really looking forward to reading your article in the newly minted May edition of the Christian Teachers Journal. Uh, and Tom, I tell you, I wish you God's richest blessing for the rest of the year. Thanks, Paul. You too, mate. Take care.